from the book of Exodus, the whole chapter, chapter 3. So please uh, follow along and stand in honor of God's word. Exodus 3. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I'll go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he'd gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying, crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you, has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. Go, assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. And I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. The elders of Israel will listen to you then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. And I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed towards his people so that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. 
Every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, which you will put on your sons and daughters. And so you will plunder the Egyptians. This is the word of the Lord. Hello. Oh, my goodness. That's going to save me so much. All right, here we go. All right. Well, you look great. That's half the battle. That's what my mom always says. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, this is great. Well, anyways, I'm sitting there. This is a whole nother level. My goodness. Uh, I'm sound now and I'm yelling. I got to tone it down a little bit. I was sitting there at my desk trying to get my ambiance right, right? Everything is about ambiance. Okay, so I'm playing instrumental worship. William Augusto. If you need some instrumental music, William Augusto is that guy, okay? I'm listening to my William Augusto. I've got a candle lit, right? I'm trying to, I'm trying to get in my mind of like what, what's happening in this passage. I'm trying to think about it. I didn't have like the childhood context of like veggie tales and like there's like the, there's like a movie with this scene in it, right? Like Moses and the burning bush. Like it's that moment. I had none of that. Okay, I grew up like watching old school and uh, like all the other like Anchorman. Okay, I was a heathen growing up. Okay, it was terrible. Okay, my wife was homeschooled, so she basically like Veggie Tales was like a class. Okay, it was just like what she did. Okay, not me. Not nothing is homeschooled. Okay, I love. Anyways, um, <laughs> uh, anyways, I, so I'm trying to get this in my mind, right? I'm sitting at my desk in my room, and, and, and Blakely walks in, my little two year old, and she sees this candle, and she looks at the candle, and she goes, "Daddy, what's that?" I'm like, "It's a candle, Blakely." She goes, "I touch it." No, can't touch the candle. But kids have this like way of not doing what you tell them to do like all the time. So she kind of slowly walks over and she's kind of looking at me. And then she looks back at the candle. And for whatever reason, her hand just slowly starts to move towards the candle. I'm like, Blakely, no, you can't touch the candle. And then she doesn't even look at me. She puts her hand back down. And then she just slowly goes back towards the candle. I'm like, Blakely, you cannot touch the candle. And I have to, I have to give her a little lesson here. Sweetie, look, last week you touched the, the, the heater and it burnt your hand, right? Hot hurts. Okay, you can't. You're, you're going to burn yourself. Fire is really hot, Blakely. You can't touch it. It's going to burn you. And, and, I, and, I, and as I was having, I'm kind of thinking, I'm like, fire is one of the only things that is both really inviting to us and also extremely terrifying, right? Like we love a good campfire. We, we love to sit around, the smell of it. It brings us warmth. It brings us energy. We, we, we love fire. We love to sit around it. It has like this magnetic pull to us. Like you ever been at a campfire gathering? It's, it's kind of a weird thing if you just like stepped outside. It's a bunch of adults not looking at each other, but having a conversation because they're just mesmerized by the fire. They're just like, yeah, man, it's been a hard week. <laughs> and the other guy's looking at it, yeah, it has been, bro. They're just like not even looking at each other because it's the fire. It invites us in. But in the same way, it's deeply terrifying, right? Like we, we've got a fireplace in our home, and I didn't even get the inspection because I'm like, I don't want a real fire in my house ever. I just think that's a bad idea. I, I grew up with an electric fireplace. I'd prefer that. You just flip the switch on, then you flip it off, and it's no danger, okay? But, but fire has this power to it, right? Fire can destroy things. It's, it, it's altogether terrifying. It's both inviting, but also deeply terrifying. And it shouldn't surprise us that as God bursts himself into the story, he does so as a fire. See, God has been in the story, but he's been mostly in the backgrounds up to this point. But here he comes to Moses and he reveals himself as a fire. Because what we're going to read this morning is that is who God is. God is both above us. He's transcendent. He's holy. But he's also God who is with us. And at his core, God is invitational. He invites us in to, to live life and to participate with him. 
that's what we're going to see this morning. The same God that is above us is the same God that is with us. So let's pray, and we'll get into it. Father, we are so grateful for the moments that we get to share here together this morning. I have nothing new to offer. Um, I have no new information. But what we need, God, is what, what we're saying this morning. We need, we need your Holy Spirit. Spirit, you come in the scriptures like a fire, and we just ask that you would come and that you would burn everything that's not of you this morning, and that you would help us to see Jesus. We don't need more information, but we need to encounter the God of fire. We need to experience you this morning. So we ask that you would come and you meet with us. Amen. Um, so I grew up in Colorado. I've said this a lot, but I'm the worst Coloradoan in human history. Okay, like I've never skied, I've never snowboarded, I've hiked like a half a mountain. Um, so, so, but, but when I read this passage, right? When I read verse one, now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. When I hear mountain of God, I have a certain picture in my head, and you might too. But Dan, can we put the? Can we put a picture. This is. This is maybe the closest depiction of what we have of what Horeb would be or Mount Sinai or really what it is. It's the mountain of God, which I don't understand outdoors sometimes. I'm just like, I don't get it. I don't know what kind of sheep we are tending to in this picture. Like, where are they going? Where are they eating? Like, I don't understand really. But I'm no outdoorsman, right? Sometimes it doesn't make sense. But, but when we look at this, we have to understand that mountains have a deep significance. You can take the picture down, Dan. No one will look at me because it's so beautiful. Um, Mountains have a deep significance in the library of Scripture. Um, see, see, the mountain, this mountain, is, is eventually it'd be the same mountain that God would meet with Moses again, and then again when he would reveal the Ten Commandments. It's, it's, it's a mountain that Jesus would teach from, and it's the foot of the mountain that Jesus would go to pray. It's, it's where he took his closest three disciples up the mountain to reveal to them that he was more than just a man, but that he was actually God. We have, we've adopted this in our own language too, Right? a mountaintop experience, that's, that's actually not too far from the truth, right? God leads us up into mountains. It's part of his flow. It's part of the, his nature that we go up to meet with God on mountains. It's what he does. It's, so, so anyways, God is meeting with Moses, and it shouldn't surprise us. Some scholars would even say it's an invitation to us to fashion our own mountain, to get away with God, that he might meet with us and speak to us, that we fashion our own place of solitude to hear from God. But here we have Moses, right? He's tending his father-in-law's flock. And all of a sudden he sees this bush and it's burning and there's fire. And Moses, like most people would, he pauses and he notices that bush is on fire and it's not, not going out on fire. It's just staying on fire. So he does what a normal person would do. And he, he kind of wanders over to the bush and he's, he's curious what is going on here. And then all of a sudden he hears a voice, Moses, Moses. And Moses, like, he gets a phone call from an unknown number. He's like, yeah, it's him. Here I am, Lord. What, who, who is it? And then the voice responds, right? He says, don't come any closer. Take your sandals off, for this is holy ground. This is holy ground, Moses. Do not come any closer. And what a bizarre thing to say, right? Like, the first words we hear from God to Moses are this. Don't get too close. This place, myself, it's far too holy for you. What does that mean, actually? Holy. We're just saying about it. We're going to sing about it again. What, is, what does the word holy mean? Well, at its most basic definition, it means to be set apart. It means to be utterly unique. It means to be separate from everything else. 
And most of the time, what, I, what I've thought of when I, when, when I think of holy is I think there's this huge gap between me and God. And usually when I'm trying to explain it to somebody, I'll say, hey, it's, it's kind of like this. It's like, let's do a vertical jump contest, okay? We got, we got Mark, we got Dr. Wilson, we got myself. We're, we're all just going to do a vertical jump contest. Some are going to be higher than others. Okay, we're not going to say any names about any guesses here. I didn't even ask Dr. Wilson. I just saw you, bro. Sorry. Um, we're all going to jump. We're going to say some people might be an inch higher or two inches higher, whatever it might be. But trying to jump to God or trying to be the, the gap between us and God is like us trying to jump to the moon, right? It's like you might be a little bit higher, but bro, we're trying to get to the moon. Why even try? That's the basic thing and theme that I've seen holiness as, that there's a separation between myself and God, which is 100% true, but it's actually even more than that. A helpful way to think about the word holy is to actually think about the sun in our solar system. See, the sun is this combination of being totally unique, life-giving, and extremely powerful. And so if the sun is holy, therefore everything else around the sun also becomes holy because the closer you get to the sun, the more intense it gets, right? And the very thing that has this power to create life and is unique and is just so powerful actually has the power to harm you. And it's not because it's bad, but it's because it's so good. And that's the holiness of God. The holiness of God is the purity of God. Meaning that impure things and impure people, they cannot stand in the holiness of God unless they burn up because of their impurities. Because of God's holiness, because of God's purity, God is like nothing else. He has no darkness in him, no sin, no wrong, nothing in him is out of place. God is above us. With a theological word that would be best to describe it would be God is transcendent. He's, he's higher than we can imagine. He, he transcends everything. There's no name above him. There's no power beyond him. There's nothing that can exist without him. So when we see God as holy and we see him as he actually is, we actually can't help but worship him. See, because worshiping, the word worship really just means to ascribe ultimate value to something. So when you see God as holy, your natural response is worship, right? The, the, the Psalms, they say, worship him in the splendor of his holiness. And can I say, sometimes this, this is what we need more than anything else, more than practicals, more than next steps, more than resolutions and more resolve. We just need to worship which is to say just to worship him for who he is, that he is holy, that he is pure, that he's good, that there's, and, and there's this power there. There's so much power there. When you just worship him, you lose sight of yourself for just a little bit. It's in this place that you, that you lose yourself in worship, that your problems slowly just start to dissipate just for a moment, to see God for who he really is, and the anxiety and the fear that's deep in your soul it seems to have a release or we can just take our eyes off of them and just see God for who he is. It's not a direct answer to what you might need, although God does do that as we worship. He speaks to us as he did with Moses, right? But it has this ability to, 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 make our, to make our finite life and problems feel a little bit small as we just worship him in the splendor of his holiness. We just see him for who he is. And when the Spirit reveals that God is holy, that he's set apart, that he's higher than us, it also, it also draws us in deeper to the life with God. Because no matter where you're going, no matter how you even came in here, God is worthy of our worship. And it makes, it's what makes God God, right? But, but what we have here is more than just God revealing his holiness to us, but he's also revealing his name. 
Verse 14, Moses comes a little bit closer. He takes off his slides and he hears this. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Then later he responds to Moses when he says, well, who, who, am, I, who am I to say is sending me? He says, I am who I am. Tell them that the I am has sent you. See, we have titles for God a lot of times in the scriptures, which most time is uh, Elohim or Adonai or Jireh or uh, El Roy, which means the God who sees. And all these things are titles for God. But what we have here is God's actual name. He's revealing his name to Moses. And there's a difference between a title and a name, right? It's like my boy Tyler, who's just up here singing. Notice what I called him? I called him Tyler, right? What you don't know, and most people probably refer to Tyler as Dr. Nivens, right? Because he's their dentist. But I don't, call, I don't call him Dr. Nivens. I call him Tyler because he's my friend and I know him. And, and how you refer to someone inevitably is how you relate to that person. So the first thing we see here is God revealing his name to us is him revealing how he wants to relate to you. Even later, we see, we, we see Moses right here. He's in fear. But a couple chapters later, we'll see the scriptures say, and Moses spoke to God as if a friend face to face. God is drawing us in with his name, saying, I don't want you to just call me by a title. You are not, you're not just to relate to me far away like I'm your patient or your client, but I am, I am. That's my name. Another implication here is, is God saying, I am who I am, or better translated, I be who I be. That just sounds good. That just feels good to say, right? I be who I be. That's just savage, right? <laughs> And one of the implications we see here is God is self-defining, meaning no one defines God except for God. Right? Another kid illustration. So sorry. Last night, putting Blakely to bed, and I don't know. She needed a kiss from mom before bed, and I'm just trying to kill time. Right? I don't know what Kayla was doing, but I'm like, all right, but like I'm trying to kill time. So I'm thinking, I might as well just get super spiritual here. So I'm like, all right, Blakely, who does Jesus love? And we do this thing sometimes. Like, who does Jesus love? She goes, me. And then I'll ask her, does Jesus love daddy? Yeah. Does Jesus love mommy? Yeah. I'll say, does Jesus love Mav? No. I'm like, uh, okay, well, she's really warming up to Mav, but you know, that, I don't know. Anyways, Mav's our little, little five-month-old. Um, I, I took that moment, right, to say, hey, Blakely, I'm going to teach you some theology before bed. Hey, Blakely, God is who he is, okay? You don't get to decide who God loves and who God doesn't love. And God already said he loves everybody. So he loves Mav. I'm sorry. You don't get to decide who God is and who God isn't, Right? It's funny, though, because we all have this, right? Scott McKnight is this New Testament professor in Chicago, and he says every year what he does is he'll, he'll hand out a blank sheet of paper, and he'll just be like, hey, guys, here's what I want you to do. If God was a person in our class, what would he be like? And he just says, write down all the characteristics, all the lists of, of who you think he'd be, what you think he'd be like. And Scott McKnight says he, he looks at it at the beginning of the semester when he doesn't really know the people, and then he compares what they said at the beginning as he starts to get to know these people, and he says like 95% of the time they end up being basically the exact same person as themselves, <laughs> right? And we all have this tendency. We have a tendency and our hearts have this desire to make God in our own image, not the other way around. And all that is to say is that, that we don't, God doesn't orient himself around us, but we orient ourselves around God because God is who he is. It's why we approach God's word and study and worship and prayer and community all with this humble heart and say, God, reveal to me who you are. Because we all have the propensity to come in with our own preconceived ideas of what God is like. And most of the time, it looks like who we want him to be, not who he actually is. And the reality is, it doesn't so much matter as what you think about God, because he is who he is. So when's the last time God confronted 
your thinking about himself. See, because renewing your mind, like Romans 12 would say, renewing your mind is what leads to transformation. But, but to renew your mind, really, it, it doesn't mean just having new thoughts and new ideas, but it's reorienting your mind around who God actually is. It's to live in the reality of who God is. Not who I want him to be or who I wish he was, but who he is. He's self-defining. It also means that he's above and before everything. Right? There is yet to be a painter who painted anything without paint. There's yet to be a writer who wrote anything without a word or a songwriter or a singer who's done anything without a note that's already been there, right? Like we cannot create anything that hasn't already been made, but God, he spoke and there was. There was nothing. And then all of a sudden there was something. We can't even think about nothing. Have you ever tried? You can't do it. You can't. The closest thing we can do to be thinking about nothing is like when you ask a little middle school boy, like, hey, what are you thinking about? Nothing. How was your day? Nothing. Like, that doesn't, that's not even the right answer. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> nothing. That's as close as we can get. We can't even think about nothing, let alone start something from nothing. God is, and he always has been, and he always will be. He's the creator and the sustainer. He is who he is. And so God is holy. That's who he is. He's above us. But he's also God among us. And earlier this week, man, I, so, so I, I'm in this first half of the passage on Monday morning. And I'm just kind of, I'm just in the morning, I'm working on it. I'm thinking, I'm just like, God, wow, you're so holy. And I'm just kind of in the, in just contemplating the holiness of God. And then Kayla and I, we kind of swap places and, and, and I take the kids and she goes to a meeting. And so like 30 seconds before, I'm just like thinking about the holiness of God. And all of a sudden I'm just like decorating these like weird paper dolls with Blakely. Like, I don't even know what this game is. It feels, I feel a little weird. I'm like, this would be you and mom, like not me. But playing this game and I have this desire inside of me because I feel this gap, right? Like I feel this gap between what I was just thinking about and then my lived experience and it just felt so far apart and I have this desire. I'm like, I just want to go back to my room and just think about how holy God is. I just want to like worship. I, I don't want to, I don't want to be here right now. And I felt the whisper of the Holy Spirit in that moment saying, Kim, this is actually what makes this passage so incredible. That the God who is higher and above everything it's the God who is with you in this ordinary moment right now. Sorry. <laughs> um, he's with you. He's with you in the ordinary moments, the average moments, the holy God, the one who's set apart, the one you had to take off your shoes to even come into his presence. He's with you in the ordinary moments. He says, I'm way more holy than you think, and I'm with you. So God who is so holy, he's also with us, right? And that's what verse, verse 7 kind of transitions us in there. It says this, and the Lord said to Moses, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. I'm concerned about their suffering. So we see three verbs right here, right? God says, I have seen, I have heard, and I am concerned. I've seen the afflictions of my people. He notices, he sees, he, he, he's aware of your pain and what you're going through. He doesn't turn away from it, but he sees it. He hears you. He hears your cries. He listens to your prayers. He doesn't turn a deaf ear to you, but he hears everything. And then he says, not only do I see it and I hear it, but I care. And I'm concerned. And not only that, but he acts. Right? Verse 8 says this, I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians, to bring them out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And this is who God is. 
God sees, he hears, he knows, he understands, and he acts, he responds. Remember we talked about that last week. And he almost always responds and is near to the needy. He always hears and responds to the cries of the hurting and the vulnerable. It's who Jesus just magnetically found himself to every time he was near the broken. Where is Jesus going to be? He's going to be near someone who is hurting every time. And can I say this morning that we don't give in to the lie of culture, that you might be ascending in life, better jobs, more responsibility, more stuff, more clout, but you might be descending spiritually. See, because with success and upward mobility actually also comes this sense of this loss of our neediness, and you never graduate past that. In fact, that's actually the place where God meets us again and again and again. He meets us in our darkest places, our lowest values, our deepest struggles. Those are the places that that, that God doesn't want to just pull us out of, but he actually wants to meet us in. We've said this from time to time in this church, and I feel like it's just, it's been in my heart for, for almost two years now, but we want to be a church and we want to be a, a, a people who position ourselves to become the type of people that Jesus would minister to. That we would be like the people before we want to go be all that we are to the world. We want to become the people that Jesus would minister to, which gets us in touch with our neediness. And don't we have testimonies in here, right? Like rarely do you hear, man, I was just killing it, self-made, awesome, knocking it all out, and then God met me. It's like, what testimony is that, bro? I've never heard that in all my years. Almost always, the life-changing moment comes when you are at the end of your rope, when you're at the end of yourself is where God always meets us. All right, to quote Eugene Peterson, he says, when you're at the end of your rope, you're blessed because there is more of God there. And it's interesting because, it's interesting for us because the book of Exodus you know, in predominantly white evangelical American churches, it might get preached once every five or ten years. But but in, in churches that are experiencing oppression, in the historical black church, in Central and South America, Exodus is that book. Because they easily identify with the Hebrew people. And to be honest, we, if you just look at your situation your lived experience, we we far more relate to the Egyptians than we do the Hebrews. So we have to do extra work just to be aware of our neediness. The oppression leads us to see our need for God to break in, the need for God's presence, and the need for his power. And that's where Moses comes onto the scene. He was a Hebrew who was in power, tight with Pharaoh and his people. And then seemingly overnight, he was a murderer who was forced to flee Midian, flee to Midian. And now he's been there for 40 years. For 40 years. I'm 29. I can't imagine that. 40 years. A life way too far gone. Irredeemable, probably. Most people think he's probably around 80 at this point. And we factor all this into the equation. It makes sense, right? Why he would hide. Why he would say, who am I? Because God says, so now go. Go. And Moses, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And he says this, right? Moses responds, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And so there's this general insecurity. There's this general um, low view of yourself that you have when you meet with, like when you come into the presence of God. It always should be that way, right? Isaiah 6, Isaiah comes into the temple. He has this vision of the Lord. And he has this, his first response is, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. 
I'm an, I'm of a people of unclean lips. And he has this revelation of himself, right? I, I am, I am unworthy to be here, which is this general feeling that we all should have. It's probably right and true, but there's also a deeply personal one. See, for Moses, it was an act of violence 40 years ago. Shame. I'm a murderer. I took another life. God, who am I that you would send me? We find out later that that he's probably got some kind of speech impediment, some kind of stutter or or, or something going on with how he talks. Who am I, God? You You want me? Right? Who am I? I'm an outcast. A failure. I've already ruined my reputation with everyone in Egypt. Who am I that I should go? And for you and for me, our stories are filled with the same deep-rooted insecurity, self-rejection, fear, and it's what's holding us back from being all who God made us to be. All right, so hear me this morning. You were made by God. You were created in Christ Jesus for good works, prepared in advance that you might walk in them. That's Ephesians 2.10, right? You were made to do something that only you can do, that God has created you by your personality and your giftings to live life, that God can do exceedingly abundantly more in you than you could ever dream of. But we have these things that are deeper that hold us back. And I know, I know that fear of failing I know what it, what it feels like to have the greater awareness of my weaknesses and the gifts that I, that I wish I had that are now holding me back because I wish I had those, but I have these ones. The, the shame, the inability to live in the forgiveness that Jesus purchased on the cross, it holds us back. Some of us are carrying secrets and because we live in the dark, we can't live into all that God has made us to be. And to all of that, the Lord speaks the same thing to you that he would speak to Moses. I will be with you. See, isn't it funny that the thing we think we need is rarely the thing that we actually need? Right? Moses is thinking, all right, if you're going to do me, at least give me like a step-by-step plan. Give me some strategies. Give me like, let me know what it's going to look like, and then we'll go with it. But he says this, I will be with you. And what he got was so much better. See, because what we need more than plans and strategies and pick-me-ups and new habits is we need the presence of God. We need the presence of God. And this is his promise to Moses, and it's his promise to us. I will be with you. The promise is his presence, and his presence is enough. The promise is his presence, and the presence is enough. Shame is undone in his presence. Fear is driven out in his presence. Your weakness becomes a strength in his presence. God can transform you in his presence. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we have God's presence in us, available to us, that we might live out of what it can do in and through us. We have God with us. And that's what's so amazing about this story, right, is that it points to another story. See, because Jesus, as he he came, they called him Emmanuel, which means God with us us. And so God was with us in the person of Jesus. And Jesus really lived here on earth. He was holiness on display. He lived a perfect life. He came to set the oppressed free. In fact, up on the mountain that I talked about earlier when he talked to John and James and who was the other one? Peter, right? It says this, we get a little window in as he's talking to Moses and Elijah up on the mountain. And this is what he says. He says, they spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. And you know what's crazy? The Bible's so amazing 
This, this word for departure is literally best translated exodus. Exodus. Meaning that Jesus is our exodus. He's the one who came to liberate it, to liberate us, and he does. And he's taken up on a mountain where God reveals himself to Moses, but, he turn, but, but, but on that mountain, he, God turns his back on Jesus and turns his face that he might look at you and I forever. See, Jesus became sin, taking it on himself so that you and I, that we could go free, so that we might be able to appear before God as if we were clean, as if we were holy, as if we were blameless, that we have a free pathway into the presence of God through Jesus. And notice the difference, right? Moses has to take his shoes off to even come a little bit close into the presence of God. But Hebrews 4, it says that you and I are to boldly approach the throne of grace in our time of need. He bridges the gap so that God who is above us can be God with us. Isn't that good news, man? Come on. All right, let me pray.